my name is Mark, and I have the, the privilege of being a pastor of discipleship here at Harbor. And uh, I want to say welcome to you who are joining us today. So good to see your faces, and or your eyes, I should say. And uh, welcome to you online. We're so glad that you've joined us today. And uh, really pleased uh, that you just make, make a part of your days to come join us to worship our great God and lift our voices. That was so cool to hear your voices lifted up to worship our great God. I love hearing voices just sing out praise to God. So thank you for joining in in that worship. Uh, I wonder if I could just open a, open a word of prayer just uh, to kind of calm myself down and just to prepare us to open up God's word. So would you join me in a word of prayer right now? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've just had to sing out your praises, to reminded of what you have done for us, to look forward to the future things that you have for us. And God, as we open up your word today, uh, we know that your word is living and active, that it's alive. We pray that you would speak into our hearts and our minds in a powerful way. Spirit, we pray that you would, would, would reveal to us, illuminate, may we see the, your greatness, may we see who you are and what you've done, and would you speak through me through your word this morning, and we pray this in your powerful name, Jesus, amen. Uh, I, want, I want you to help imagine a scenario with me for a moment. Now, it's a difficult scenario, so you're going to have to work a little hard at this, but this is the scenario. It goes like this. You, you feel left out, you're out of place, you don't fit in. You're an outsider, maybe looking in on others' lives. You're added to that, you face difficulty. Life is not easy. Things have been turned upside down. You've been disrupted. Everything's in turmoil. And then added to that, if you can imagine it, people are attacking you. They're looking down on you. They hate you. And you're facing that persecution. That's quite a scenario to think of, isn't it? It's not an easy scenario for us to, to ponder, but if you can get your head around some of that, the question I want to ask for us is this. What's our first response? What's our first response to a scenario like that? And again, that's a difficult scenario, but maybe you can pinpoint one of those things that maybe you're facing now or maybe you've faced in the near past. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe you're finding that life is just difficult. It's hard. Maybe you're finding that you're losing hope. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel that people are coming against you or they're attacking you. What is your first response? I think really easily we can think of some first response, can't we? We might say, okay, you know what? We can, we can maybe blame someone or someone else is to blame for what's happening in my life. Maybe our first response might be to fight, to fight back, or maybe to try to, to fix the situation, to to run from the situation? Maybe our first response is running to God and saying, God, you need to fix this. You need to make this right right now in front of me. What's our first response? What do you think it might be as you think of a situation like that? Well, this morning we're looking into 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, Peter gives, at, at first glance, an unusual first response to the people he's writing to. It seems really unusual. It doesn't seem like it fits into place. But I think, and I know, actually, well, maybe I'll think, that as we consider it, we'll realize that it's a powerful first response when we face situations like that. 
We're in a series entitled Living as Elect Exiles. And as I said, we're walking through First Peter. And that letter was written by a guy named Peter to a bunch of mostly non-Jewish Christians who faced the very scenario that I tried to get you to imagine. They had been displaced from their home and their land. They had been scattered all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They didn't fit in. They stood out. They faced hostility. They were hated, abused, intimidated. They were troubled with little resources and no way out. They were exiles. But Peter, as we saw in the earlier verses, reminded that not only, okay, are you exiles, but you're the elect. Elect meaning that God has sovereignly chose you, chose you for salvation, to be his people. And so now we get to verse 3, and we've kind of finished off the introduction, who it's from, who it's to, who's this letter to, and we get to this verse 3 to verse 5, and we find out what Peter tells them is their first response. Again, it's going to seem unusual, but walk with me and, and, and see what Peter has to write here. Uh, I should say, I didn't say it earlier, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, or to turn them on, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading for us right now, verses 3 to 5. And and, uh, Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What's our first response? What's the very first word there you see in chapter, in verse 3? Praise. (laughs) He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little unusual, isn't it? Here he's talking to a people who are having a hard time, who are struggling, who people are attacking them. And what does he call them to do? He says, praise. And what's so interesting about this phrase, it's not, he's not writing as, as, as if he's praising God, although he is. But he's writing it in a sense that, hey, let's praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, he, he includes them in it. He urges them to join in on praising God. And, and I find it fascinating. He doesn't, he doesn't give them the first response of blaming people or feeling down or running away or even asking God to fix the problem. He doesn't do any of that. He says, guys, this is what we got to do. Let's praise God. Let's praise God. And, and Peter knew that his readers, and just like us, just like me, we get so easily bogged down by the circumstances right there before us. We have a hard time, a trouble to see the bigger picture, to see who God is and what he has done for for us and what he will continue to do for us. But he calls us to worship. And and let me say this, Peter is not diminishing the pain or the struggles that this people that he's writing to are facing. He's not trivializing that. He's not discounting that. He's not ignoring it. Just like uh, as we look in the passage, we're not ignoring the pain and the hurt and and the snares that we're facing he, he, he knew that pain, but, listen to this, he wanted to encourage Christians living in a hostile world to rejoice in their eternal blessings through Jesus. He wanted their minds to comprehend the great truth of God and their hearts to kick in with deep feelings of wonder and admiration and gratitude towards God. I love that. Let me read that again. Hopefully you follow along with me, but let me read it again. 
He wanted to encourage Christians living in a hostile world to rejoice in their eternal blessings through Christ. He wanted their minds to comprehend the great truth of God and their hearts to kick in with deep feelings of wonder, admiration, and gratitude towards God. What a great response. What a great response. I'd rather do that response than complain and gripe or try to run or fix from the situation. But we may, and maybe you're thinking this already, and I think probably the readers thought this too when they first read that first line. They're like, okay, Paul, or Peter, that's easier said than done. I mean, look at what we're facing. It's, a lot, it's pretty easy to say praise God, but, but there's, you gotta give us more here, Peter. And that's exactly what Peter does. For the next couple of verses, he describes and, and shows these powerful realities of who God is and what he has done to conjure up, to, to brist up, to, to overflow this, this praise in their hearts towards God. And so what we're going to do over the next number of moments is look into these powerful, powerful realities. And my prayer is that as we do this, our minds will comprehend not only who God is, but also what he has done for us. That the things of this life would come into perspective. That we would praise God and may we be in awe of him this morning. So join with me and it's in verse 3 we see the very first thing that he brings up that we praise God for. We praise God, we praise him for his great mercy. Right there in verse 3 it says, In his great mercy... He has given us. And I want to stop there. Let's not get to what he's given us yet. Let's stop before we get there because there's something really important right here. And and it's here we see an attribute of God. We see that he has great mercy. But before we actually get to that, we see that God is the main actor. He's the one who's making things happen. It's not us. It's not us who has made something happen or earned something or, or, or required God to give us. No, no, no. It's God. He is the giver. He is the one who sovereignly chose them, who brought them salvation and is bringing blessings into their lives. And it's all because, it's all because of his great mercy. It's nothing we've done to earn that. Mercy is the response of God. If you're wondering what mercy is, mercy is the response of God who looks upon our miserable and sinful and pitiful condition, and when he looks in on that condition, he wells out with compassion. He sees the ones he has made in his image. He sees sin that's ravaged us, and the Lord grieves over the unredeemed sinner in the condition of gloom and despair, and he's filled with great mercy, so much so that he responds. Sometimes we may think, or you, maybe you hear people say that God's, God's not a near God, God's a distant God, that he's, he doesn't know anything about our pain or our brokenness, that he's off onto the side just ignoring us, but that's not true. What we see through scripture is that God is one who sees our hurt and our pain. He sees the sin that is in our lives. He sees how sin has ravaged us. And his response, I love it, it's mercy. He's pained and he's moved to act on our behalf, not because we've done anything to deserve it or warrant it, but he acts upon his mercy, his great mercy. And where we see the greatest picture of God's mercy is on the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, and we sang about it earlier, Jesus, the sinless one, took our sin upon himself. 
He became sin for us. He took our miserable, sinful, pitiful condition and entered that, took that from us, and he served our sentence. His great mercy was a costly mercy. It's a costly mercy. He knows pain and, pain and hurt because he took our place in that. He took our place and lavishes his mercy. It's, we praise him for his great mercy mercy on the cross. And that, that initiates everything that we're going to talk about now. The cross opens the door to all these things that God has made possible for us, that he gives us. It's because of his great mercy on the cross and the salvation that that brings. And so let's look, continue on. In his great mercy, he has given us, look at what he's given us. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What you'll notice is a little bit of an outline in this verse here, and I've kind of put it on the side screens. I'm not a very good designer, but I try, sometimes it helps me when I look at a passage to kind of break it down. And so in his great mercy, what has he given us? He's given us new birth, and that new birth is into a living hope, and into an inheritance. And it just helps me form in my head kind of what are the things that Peter's talking about here. And so as we look at that, the first thing, we, we, we praise God because of his great mercy. And now we praise God because of new birth. Uh, I'm reminded of Jesus' conversation with uh, Nicodemus. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. Uh, Nicodemus goes, hunts down Jesus kind of in the dark in the night. And he pulls Jesus aside and, and he hears Jesus say these words, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I love Nicodemus because he's just puzzled. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue what's going on. And, and he's like, how can someone who's old be born again? He says, surely they can't enter a second time into the mother's womb. I love Nicodemus. He's trying so hard. He's not putting it, he's not putting it together so well. But then Nicodemus failed to understand that Jesus wasn't talking about a repeated physical birth. What Jesus is talking about is the need for spiritual birth. And Nicodemus didn't realize that he was spiritually dead. He didn't realize that spiritually dead means you're unresponsive to God, that you're separated from God, that there's nothing you can do to bring yourself to life. What he needed, what we all need, is to be brought back to life spiritually, to be reconciled to God. And in that conversation, Jesus says another peculiar thing he says this, he says to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, you can't make this new birth happen. You, you can't will this new birth to happen. The spirit is the one who brings to life spirit. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And it's what I love is that God sees our sinful condition. He sees that sin is ravaged. He sees that we are spiritually dead. We are unresponsive. And what does God do? He gives us a new life. He knows our sinful nature needs to be changed. And God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, awakens us, transforms our sinful heart, uh, regenerates us. We're spiritually dead and we then come to life. And that's such a beautiful picture. Listen to what Paul, how he explained it in Ephesians chapter 2. He wrote this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Like the rest of us, we were by nature deserving wrath. But, but because of his great for love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And so once when we were dead in our sin, we couldn't do anything about it, but God brought us spiritually alive. He reconciled us back to himself so that we're now responsive to God. We're now in relationship with God. We now know God. And that's a new life that he makes possible. And so we praise him for that. We praise him because we didn't make that happen. We praise him because he chose us. We praise him because he brought us to life so that be in relationship with him. We praise him for new birth. And then that leads to, remember, there's two things. New birth into a living hope and then into an inheritance. Let's look now at the living hope. We praise him for a living hope. You know what hope is, right? Hope is the expectation and desire for certain things to happen, right? Like, I hope that the Blue Jays win this afternoon. I hope that they, Terry, yeah, I hope that they get a wild card position. I hope, I think we're all here, I hope that this COVID thing would just kind of wrap up. (laughs) I hope that you don't fall asleep during my message. That's really awkward for me standing up here looking out. I hope that doesn't happen. There's lots of things that we hope for. I mean, you think throughout your day, there's lots of things you hope for. You think of your coworkers, your friends, your families. There's lots of things that we hope for. But Peter is giving us a different type of hope here. See, lots of people hope. Lots of people hope, but those hopes are dying hopes. Those hopes are uncertain hopes. Those hopes have no substance, uh, no, nothing that has confidence in those hopes. And Peter's talking about quite a different hope. Do you see how he, how he calls the hope or how he describes the hope? He speaks of a living hope. A living hope. This is a hope with substance. This is a hope that's absolutely secure This is a hope that we can confidently bank our life and our faith on. And it's this, that that death will not have the ultimate end or the ultimate say. Death will not defeat us. We have an eternity with God that we look forward to. The best is yet to come. We have hope because the things that we face in this world won't crush us. It won't end us finally, completely, ultimately. And that's so important to realize when we see that Peter's writing to a people who are going through some very difficult things. They're suffering, they're hurting, they're in pain, and he doesn't discount that. He doesn't trivialize their pain, but what does he say? He reminds them that the hope that they have is not dependent on the circumstances that they're facing. They're not dependent on the circumstances. Their hope is not in this world. Their hope is a living hope in the living Jesus and this secure hope that no earthly circumstance, no situation, no one coming at them can ever take away. And knowing this type of a hope in new life now and new life in the future, knowing that, this kind of hope, doesn't that change the way you see things in our lives? Instead of being bogged down by the, by the despair or what's happening in life and the difficulty, we're reminded that, that of what God has done for us. We're reminded that we are in relationship with him and that we will spend eternity with him. And that is a living hope. See, living hope is anchored in the past, that Jesus rose from the dead. Living hope continues in the present, that Jesus is alive. And living hope endures through the future. Jesus promises eternal resurrection, life. And, and I, I, t- I missed a section that I want to go back to in this part of this living hope. Now, people might look in and say, well, how do you really have confident hope in this living hope? How can you have any confidence there? All you have is wishful thinking as a Christian. All you have is wishful thinking. 
But then we look how Peter describes, or the phrase that comes right after him talking about this living hope. Do you see what he wrote there? He said, into a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the reason why we can have this living hope, the reason why it's living and lively and certain and has substance is because it's based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Because we know that death did not defeat him, that Jesus rose from the grave, that he is alive now, and he's just secured for us our salvation. So this is not an empty hope. This is a living hope based upon the resurrection of Jesus. And so we praise him for this living hope. And lastly, we praise him for an inheritance, an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. Now, thinking of this people who Peter's writing to, it's a much different culture than we are in. We have inheritances, right, when something gets passed along the family. But, but in this culture, uh, the inheritance was the inheritance of land, and land was very important. The fact that they were displaced from their land, from their homeland, meant that whatever property they had, um, they once had and stood to inherit had been lost. They had lost their worth. They had lost their identity. They had pushed from their families, and they were foreigners with no opportunity, no possibility of any inheritance whatsoever. And in a culture like that, they would have been hopeless. That would have been incredibly discouraging. And what I love, what Paul reminds them of, is that through Jesus, they have an inheritance. Through Jesus, we have an inheritance. We are this new birth into a new family. We are a child of God. And unlike an earthly inheritance of land that will perish or spoil or fade, this is an inheritance that, that will never pour, perish, never spoil, and never fade. And look at those three words, Never perish means that it's untouched by death or destruction. Never can it be taken away. It is secure. Secondly, inheritance will never spoil. In other words, it's free from decay. It will not be polluted. It will not deteriorate. And lastly, the inheritance will never fade, meaning, uh, meaning that in, in time, it will not lose its magnificence or its splendor. It is, will never perish, never spoil, never fade, and such a good news for, the, for Peter's audience who had pushed from their home. They had lost their in earthly inheritance, but now because, of a, because they're now part of the family of God with this new birth in relationship with God, they are now children of God and recipients of a much better inheritance, a much better inheritance. And what's this inheritance? The internal, it, it's an internal inheritance of life and righteousness and joy and peace and perfection, and the presence of God in the new heavens and new earth. This is an inheritance that they looked forward to. This is an inheritance that we look forward to and anticipate. And what's so great about this inheritance is not, uh, not what I've just described, but the fact that God will keep this secure and protected. This is not like we're, we're, we're on the stock market and we're hoping things keep going good. No, God's going to protect this, protect the inheritance for us. And he even says that the inheritance is kept in heaven, that God is making it sure that it's safe and secure and protected. And what's more, and I love this part, that not only is the inheritance kept safe, we are kept safe. We will receive this inheritance. And I love verse 5. It says this, you who are shielded, by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. See, not only is this inheritance protected, but we as his people are protected. And that's such good news. 
because sometimes we don't know if we can hold on. Sometimes it seems like it's too big coming at us. Sometimes the problems and the difficulties seem overwhelming. And, and, and God, am I going to be able to hold on anymore? And we're reminded here, it's not us holding on. It's us in faith, trusting in him. And God is the one who shields us. God is the one who makes sure that we're safe and secure and protected. He preserves us so that we can receive that inheritance. And I love that. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. Praise him for his great mercy. Praise him for, his, for the new birth. Praise him for a living hope. Praise him for unimaginable and secure inheritance. And my prayer for us this morning, that as we respond to the things in our life, as we think of the things in our life, my, my heart for my response and your response as you face those things that we wouldn't simply just see what's right before us, but that we would turn our eyes upon God, that would realize who he is and what he has done for us, that, that, we would, uh, that we would know that we're in relationship with him, that his presence is with us, that his help is there, that he, we have this living hope, that this future is secured through the cross. And when we fix our eyes on these powerful truths, my prayer is that our hearts kick in with deep feelings of wonder and admiration and gratitude towards God, that we would praise him. And that would be our first response in the midst of a difficult life, that we would praise God. And what better way to respond to this? What better way to praise God and reflect on what God has done for us than to come around the communion table? And I'll invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've turned and trusted in Jesus and uh, turned to Jesus for forgiveness and, and new life and made Jesus the king of your life, then I invite you to join us as we partake in these elements.